Welcome to the Dear Rochester Retire Well Podcast with David Pulsini from Six Point Financial Partners. In this podcast, find your path towards a brighter financial future with David as your guide as he helps individuals, educators, and healthcare professionals explore ways they can build wealth while minimizing risk using a multifaceted, comprehensive approach to personal finance. Are you ready to take the first step towards a brighter financial tomorrow? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back today with a request from a few of our listeners. People have been asking to hear about some mistakes that we have seen folks make with their finances and their financial planning. So rather than have you listen to me the whole time, we have three guests today. Each one is a CFP. That's a certified financial planner. It's the gold standard in our business for designations. And today we have Joe Prestigiacomo, CFP, John Harm, CFP, and Alex Neary, CFP. Gentlemen, we're going to jump right into this because this could be a long episode. Why don't we start with Joe? I'm going to have each of us run through two mistakes that we've seen and then uh, take it from there and then maybe obviously answer on how, how we can help the folks and the listeners take care of those mistakes. So Joe, again, getting right into it, what is the first mistake that you see people make with their finances or financial planning? Yep. the One of the big mistakes that I've personally seen and I know our group has seen a lot lately is required minimum distributions. And what I mean by that is we've seen and we've all met people who have multiple retirement accounts, whether it's an IRA and a 403B, maybe they have a 401k on top of that as well. When they're approaching you know, 72, they have to take the required minimum distribution. And what a lot of people think is if they just take it out of one account, that they're good to go. The issue is that's not exactly how it works. For the IRS website, you have to take it out of each separate account, each separate registration, I should say. So if you had, let's just say three accounts, a 401k, 403b, and IRA, you have to take it a required minimum distribution out of each of those accounts. How it could differ a little bit if you had two IRAs and a 401k, you could take the distribution out of one IRA and the 401k, you just have to take two distributions instead of three. So we do see a lot of people who are, you know, have multiple accounts and they're floating around, you know, just be aware when you do approach 72. I and mean, I'll talk about the second mistake and how this kind of builds on that one um, when it's yeah. my turn again, that you are taking that correct amount before you receive a penalty or a letter in the mail from the IRS stating you owe 50% of what you were supposed to take. Yeah. So Joe, it, for the listeners out there, that's 401k, 403b, IRA, 457, SEP plan, simple plan. All mm-hmm. those are just different titles for different tax codes, right? So correct. what Joe's talking about, if you have different accounts with different tax codes, that's the name of each of those. Those are literally named after if you go to IRS section 401-K, that's a for-profit retirement account pre-tax. We know when we approach 72, we have to take that money out, right, Joe? And if you don't take it out, correct. So let's say let's say someone was supposed to take twenty thousand out of their account and they didn't. What's what's their penalty? Fifty percent, which is uh, ten thousand bucks. Yeah, that's right. So you want to make sure that we're on top of that. That's uh, it's. A, I would say it's a big mistake amongst do-it-yourself investors that are trying to manage their own stuff. And my record, Joe, I've said this on the podcast several times, is seventeen different retirement accounts that I've seen. I haven't been, I haven't been that high. I think I've seen, 
like eight or nine is the highest I've been yeah. to. 17 is uh, pretty impressive. It is impressive. And that's fine. And, and people do that because they think they're either diversifying or doing something different at different places. So let me ask you this, Joe, as a follow-up, how, how, do, we, how do we eliminate that from happening if there are folks that have this going on? I think I'm a little bit more OCD. I, I would probably want everything together. That's just me personally. I don't know if I could have eight or nine or 17 yeah. retirement accounts out there just because of all the tracking, uh, whether, well, it's probably not statements in the mail anymore. I mean, you get all the emails or notifications. Like, I would probably say get everything together in, in one spot. And you can, you said diversification. People think they're diversifying with 17 retirement accounts. You can diversify within the one IRA. Yep. And then it's a lot easier to keep track of. It's clean. It's easy. So I would probably say get them together and consolidate everything in one spot if you yeah. could. I like it. And let me tell you, when you have 17 or eight or nine or whatever it is, you have multiple beneficiaries. The 17 retirement accounts, the beneficiaries were, I would say, outdated. All right. So Joe, in, in the spirit of moving on here, thank you for that first mistake, folks. Take your RMDs from the proper accounts. John, let's get to you. John Harm, CFP, what is one mistake that you see, sir? First off, I mean, I, I know you've all encountered this, but running into or meeting with someone that used an advisor that worked at what we call a captive insurance agency, right? I know in your practice, what you like to do a lot is, is present a list of questions that you should ask your financial advisor. And, and, and one of them really is uh, what types of products you offer. If the only thing that your advisor can offer is products at their own company, then by nature, there, there's going to be a conflict of interest, right? You're not getting every single uh, product that could be um, beneficial to you, right? I would look at it. These are not financial advisors, right? These are salespeople, right? They're selling a product. They're not even licensed to give investment advice. Their business card could make it look like they are an advisor, but really what ends up happening is you end up with all these different products that you know may or may not be the best solutions for your financial needs or your goals. So you've heard that saying, if you only have a hammer, then every uh, problem looks like a nail, right? And that's, that's essentially what ends up happening. I've run into multiple people over the years that their retirement plan as positioned to them by a captive insurance agent is a permanent life insurance policy to be their retirement account. So many reasons why that that's just an incredibly bad uh, way to go about retirement planning. The costs are enormous. Uh, and we're talking, I'm talking about people that make $50,000, $60,000 a year. Permanent life insurance certainly can serve a purpose for someone's retirement plan, but we're talking about people that make a, a good amount more than you know, your average uh, median family income, right? I'd say a lot of times these people, they're encouraged or sometimes almost required to market to friends and family. I hear this story a lot. You know, my, my friend did this, my cousin, whoever, that I bought this insurance policy. They're not in the business anymore. So what happens is they get left behind to whether it's a manager or, or someone else that inherits the account. They can't move it because there's charges to move it. It's got to stay in there a certain period of time. There was a big reason when I came into this business, it was still, I would say, encouraged to talk to your friends and family, but I didn't approach any of my family members for years about this stuff because you just see people coming and going. It's a very hard career, right? High failure rate to make that the primary marketing to me, it just seems like, why not learn to see if you're actually can do it and you're good at it? 
And everybody that gets into the business, I feel like they know that, right? They know that it's hard. Like it's very well known and understood that, you know, it's a very high failure rate. I would say even one of the things that that I would advise someone to look at, and I know you do too, is looking, just Google broker check. Our regulatory body puts out what the advisor, anyone that has a securities registration is listed on there. What licenses they hold, which basically leads into what types of business they can do, where they've worked, for how long, and most importantly, whether or not they've had any client disputes or complaints. That's all disclosed on there. So that's highly encouraged to do that. And you know where we came from, we worked for an insurance agency. It wasn't captive. You can find out these things. They got to disclose to you where they're placing the business through, whether it's the company that they work for, if that's the only company products they're offering you when it comes to life insurance, annuities, you're not being essentially offered everything that's out there. You might be paying higher prices. You might not be getting the the best uh, rates or the best guarantees out there. That's uh, just something that I, I think I've seen a lot that hopefully when I meet with someone, we can try to help them with actually seeing what else is out there because it oftentimes makes sense to do something differently. Yeah, John. And one thing that I think is is important to point out is it's hard to recognize if that's happening. And the question on the questions that I would encourage somebody to ask is, do you have an incentive to recommend one product over another? I'm not opposed to shocking some listeners right now, John, if you want to. like, If we were to, first of all, taking a quick step back, if they work at a company that encourages the sale of their own product, that Many times they will say, oh, no, I can do anything. But at the end of the day, it usually comes back to the company product, right? So just be careful of that and be careful of why. And there can be (laughs) bonuses, stock options, trips involved if they sell X amount of their company stuff. So if I were to, and I'll give an example here, John, if I were to sell a certain type of product to somebody, and people have no idea how financials are typically paid. Financial advisors are typically paid. So if if I put a million dollars into an annuity account and I wanted to, there are different options, but if I wanted to, I might make, what, what do you folks think? I'll give you one second to think about it. What do you think we would make on a million dollar sale into an annuity? The answer could be $70,000. My next paycheck would say $70,000. Or I could put somebody into an account that pays me Call it five or $600 a month for as long as we have the relationship. Which do you think is more attractive for a new advisor that's trying to make it in the business and not fail out? Most of them are going to take their 70000 every time, right, John? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yep. We need to be careful. I think that's a great question, a great mistake. They're hard to point out. If you guys have any questions and you're listening to this, like we can tell in two seconds, just based on the company they are working at, if they're working at a, quote, captive insurance company or not. Okay. Like I said, it, it's difficult because in many of the situations, it's someone that's that's close to them that they know. It's, it's a hard topic to kind of broach if they haven't had that experience. But just in anything, in anything, in in uh, financial services and all that, just do your research. Like that's why we we do offer those questions. And the reason why we're all on here is we are CFPs. We are fiduciaries. We have to act in our clients' best interest. So when you don't know whether that's the case or not, that's I think it's becoming more and more to the forefront and there's more, I I get the question even more now than I ever did. Just make sure you're doing your research on this. It's not like, okay, if you buy the car, you know, buy a car and and you make a mistake that, you know, that costs you some years, but some of these mistakes can really have long lasting effects. You know, just do your research. 
And uh, we won't get into this right now, John, but what, what if you're a CFP working at one of those captive insurance companies? That's a question for later. We don't need to answer that right now. <laughs> let's move on to let's move on to Alex just to keep this thing rolling. Alex Neary, CFP first mistake. Yeah, so I had a couple different thoughts, and for our listeners, I kept the rest of our guests here in suspense and didn't tell them what I was be talking about. <laughs> the first one I want to cover is we run into a lot of people that are less than intentional about choosing when they claim social security. Unfortunately, we meet a lot of people who have already made a decision when they're talking to us, and they say, "I claimed it last year, and now we need to." work backwards to decide if that was a good option for them or not. Um, I would like to take a second to quiz Dave. Dave, could you tell our listeners, your best guess, what percent of people claim Social Security age 62? Great question. What percent uh, of Americans are taking Social Security on the first day they can, which for our listeners, you can take it as early as 62 or as late as 70. What percent would you guess? It's 50. Oh, you guessed high. So the answer is 34.3% according to an article from 2018 from the USA Today. <laughs> I didn't make that number up. So what we're finding a lot of times is we tend to meet people that are getting ready to retire. They might be 63, 64, and they tell us, well, I already claimed Social Security. I claimed it at 62. And that might be the best strategy for them, but more times than not, we find that they just took it because they realized that they could and they wanted to take it as soon as possible because they've been paying into the system for all these years. And for whatever reason, there's a fear out there that the system's going to run out of money and they want to get something out of it while they can. When in reality, they're not considering things like spending or earning limits on Social Security that can penalize them, what portion of Social Security is taxable if they're still working or have income from an IRA or another pension, what the benefit could grow to. We'll talk about that in a second here, or how that affects their spouse if they have a spouse that also has Social Security. Now, obviously, there is a benefit to waiting. Every year that you wait, you can actually get about a 7 to 8% increase on the benefit all the way up until age 70. At age 70, only 3.7% of Americans want to claim Social Security, even though it's the largest check. Um, and I know this is something we're going to get into a little bit more, but if you save correctly during your working years, it just opens up more options for you down the road and find two things happen. Either people are taking Social Security at 62 because they don't know any different, because they haven't been educated on it, or because they don't have any other options, which is unfortunate, but it definitely happens if people haven't saved appropriately or have had just kind of a, a bad break in life. They might not have a choice but to take it at 62. So that is my first mistake. Anything you want to add, Dave? Yeah, I would just say that we, we hear all sorts of, I'll call them excuses, right? On why I'm taking it at 62 versus waiting. And the typical excuse that I hear is, I don't want to quiz you, Alex, but I hear this all the time. I'm not going to live that long. I'm not going to make it to 78 years old. Let me tell you, folks, if you make it past 78, you're going to want the bigger check. And it's hard to plan for that. And I'll tell you what, in this economic environment that we're in, an 8% guaranteed increase compounding on a benefit is very, very powerful. So again, I'm not saying that it's always correct to wait, but if we run an actual financial analysis, so there's two parts of financial planning, right? There's the, the practical financial side, and then there's the emotional side. The practical financial side will almost always, almost always tell us to wait to take social security. The emotional side I get it. We can't talk folks into taking it or not taking it. That's completely up to them. And it's hard when you see this benefit dangling out there that you could just say, hey, I'm going to go turn on my $2,000 a month. I want to turn on my $3,000 a month. Then there are spousal strategies, right? I don't know. I don't want to step on any toes. I'm not sure what anyone else is going to talk about, but the spousal strategies involved with social security, it can be very complex. There's over 800 different combinations to take. It shows that right on our financial plans that we're running. 
So any advisor that is familiar with social security, if you can get ahead of it, you, you can meet with somebody that knows what they're talking about to help you and show you why. There have been many times we've met with people that they're getting an extra thousand or $2,000 a month without even affecting their benefit because they didn't know certain things were available with spouses or divorced spouses or people passing away. So I'll add that to my social security talk, Alex. So thank you for the first mistake. Let's be intentional about social security. A quick interruption. Six Point Financial Partners is taking on new clients. If you would like to take the next step in planning your future with Dave or the Six Point team, please visit them at www.sixpointfp.com to schedule a time or reach out via LinkedIn, Facebook, or simply find us on the internet by searching Six Point Financial Partners. Okay, back to the show. Let's bring yeah. it back to Joe. We're going to go for round two here. Joe, what is the second mistake? You talked about RMDs in the last one. Yep. Department so, of Distribution is a 72, so go ahead with this one. Yeah, so mine, I guess, is going to build off. Alex is pretty oh, nicely perfect. here. Income planning. A lot of us on here talking about retiring or retired individuals. Many people, we see this, right? They've, you know, we've met with people, you know, at all stages of life, different ages, and many people are in that accumulation phase, right? So I'm saving X or I'm saving Y, and we won't go into why they're saving that or not saving that, but they're really good at building their assets up. And the reason I say this builds off of Alex's is what is your income plan? What are you going to live off of when you're retired? Because from the people I talk to, and I'm sure it's the case across the board here, when many people go to retire, they don't want to go back to work for 40 hours a week. If they find a part-time job for like 10 hours a week, just to get out of the house to do something, they will. But what is your plan? Where are you going to take these dollars from? Is it social security? Is it your pension that you may or may not have? Your retirement accounts? You need to get a plan in place. And unfortunately, what we see a lot of the time, and I think Alex brought this up, is you know people retire at 62. They want to take their social security. I think it was like over 30% of the people do that. And then you know when they want to go retire, they're thinking, I'm 62 and I'm just going to start pulling money. Well, Why? Why are you pulling money? What is it? Did you, you know? Do you have a lot of debts you're trying to pay off to maintain your lifestyle? Are you not coming to grips with reality that you cannot live the way you're living right now? And maybe you do have to take step back and kind of say, "All right, it is what it is. It's not terrible, but you know, I can't go on vacation four times a year. Yeah, like two or three times. You know, so developing that plan." And maintaining your lifestyle is a huge thing. And we'll see a lot of people saying, I think there, there probably is a, a statistic out there in your first probably five years is when you're going to do a lot of your traveling and your hobbies, because you know, you're still young and fit. And then you know, ultimately life might slow you down a bit. So maybe you won't spend as much, but getting that plan in place, I would say more than 36 hours before your retirement is probably a, a good idea. You know, get it years in advance. So if you have to tweak it, you're in a great spot. That's right. That's what I would stress is getting that plan in place. I like it, Joe. So it, this goes back to, a, I say this constantly, how much money do you need? Mm -hmm. Where is it going to come from? And then what you do when you're doing a quote, real financial plan is what are our anticipated monthly expenses? And then we can figure out the best place to take your different accounts, pensions, social securities. Are you expecting an inheritance? Are you expecting to sell some real estate? All of those I guess the extra things that could happen come into play when you're actually building a plan. And if you start sooner rather than later, yep. and by the way, I get this question a lot, Joe, I'm, 
Dave, I'm 54 years old. I feel behind in retirement. Is it too late? No way. It's be- I mean, it's better today than waiting 15 more years, right? So yep. I, would, I would start today. So when you're running a real financial plan, an income plan, and includes the last two mistakes, how and when do we take social security? How and when do we distribute our different accounts? And if you have time, how do we adjust our savings to make sure that we meet our monthly spending or savings goals? Right. Mm-hmm. Joe, Joe's mistake is just, and then the answer is just get ahead of it. Right. And the mistake is yeah. let's not, let's have an income plan in place rather than not. Okay. Right. All right. Thanks, Joe. Well, let's get back to John for his second mistake after uh, pretty much be careful of hiring a captive insurance agent, which I like. So go ahead, John. All right. So number two and could be more number one than the first one, but this is the one I wanted to save for last because it's the one I see probably most often right now. Depending on the types of clients that that you guys work with, I don't, you know, everybody has a different type of business, but most employees in our country are going to have a 401k at this point. So 401k is private corporation, you know, it be, has become the predominant savings vehicle for retirement less so a reliance on pensions. Pensions have become incredibly expensive for employers. So 401k is is going to be the one that most people have. But what I'm encountering a lot lately is meeting with people in their mid-50s, looking at retirement or, or late 50s, basically right at that point where they want to know, can I retire? And I meet with them and they have sizable amounts in their 401k, but no other assets other than a a modest amount in a savings account. To Joe's point with the retirement income planning, some of that has to start kind of early on, right? To know, okay, the 401k is one piece, but there's a taxation on that. Every time I take money out of my 401k, I have to pay income tax on it, right? I didn't pay it up front. So now the IRS says I owe them. So what's another common characteristic of people that have built up large amounts in their 401k? And it's, they don't like to spend money, right? they've learned how to save enough. They've lived within their means and they've ended up with large amounts in their 401k. And that's great. I mean, 90, you know, 99% of the time I move with them, they can reach all their financial goals in retirement and be fine. But there are tremendous costs in the form of taxes to either them or beneficiaries that if we are actually planning for these things, and it's definitely not too late at 55, but there are certainly things that we, we can look at and, and things that we can do to, to kind of ease that. It, again, I, in our last podcast, I, and I always tell this is to a client, this is a good problem to have. Like 99% of the people on, in our country on this planet would love to have the problem that you're going to have. But it's to me, and, and I, I still have yet to find a client that is, enjoys paying higher taxes and enjoys having their kids pay higher taxes. It, it just... It's something we, we need to address and do something about. One, that's one of the first things that we try to look at. So the taxes use, again, to required minimum distributions. If you don't want to spend money at age 72, it doesn't matter. The IRS is going to force you to take money out of that account or pay that 50% penalty, which is ridiculous, but it's their deal they made with you. You didn't pay taxes, so now you got to. But I mean, I've run plans recently where someone's in their mid-50s and at age 72, their income plan and what they spend, now the IRS tells them they have to take out eighty to 100000 more than what they're spending. How, how on earth do you tell someone that doesn't spend that much money that they now have to pay eight, you know, taxes on eighty to 100000 more of income? 
It's, so, so John, what so, do you do? What do you do for the 55 year old now that has that issue? So in, in these circumstances, whether they're still working or not, I mean, there's things you can do differently. If they're still working and still have income, you can start looking at other types of investments, whether it's Roth IRAs or even after-tax brokerage accounts, depending on their income. I talked about it a little earlier. It could be permanent life insurance that has some tax advantages. But bottom line, there are those types of plans out there. If they have entered retirement, which some of the people I've met with are you know, retiring in two months, right? never had an advisor. They've done very well, right? So that's not to take anything away from that. It's to, to save up that amount of money is incredible. But what I, I then have to do is look at, we, we um, use software to help us in looking at tax brackets to try to, I almost say it's kind of like a little game you play with the IRS, right? They tell you how much you can earn uh, at a certain rate and then every dollar above it, you got to pay a higher rate. Well, we're at an advantageous time where Historically, tax rates are, are lower. So as long as we can pay some low tax rates now and, and kind of afford to do that, which most of these cases, it, it's, it's doable, then you can either do Roth conversions, you can take more money out that they don't necessarily need and still invest it in an after-tax brokerage account, buy shares of, of companies or mutual funds that have good tax advantages down the road for, for beneficiaries, if that's what it ultimately ends up going to. So, But bottom line, we are talking about, in some cases, saving this family household hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. So, I mean, I've said this, I say this to clients all the time, what I do in trying to improve performance of an account, that's, that's great. But this stuff is the real place that, that I'm earning the amount of money that, that I earn from a client. It's what is it, John? Asset allocation versus asset location. Just simply yeah. moving things around, saving into the right place can make a lot of sense. By the way, you should have totally led with folks. If you listen to the next three minutes, we could save you hundreds of thousands of hundreds dollars. Of thousands. But now you can rewind and listen to that all over again. But this is stuff that advisors and CFPs can do for you. We run into it all the time. We all know this. Folks with a pension or two pensions, 401ks, 403bs. And John's right. You, you might have between your pensions, by the way, which are extremely valuable, and that's why it's so costly for employers to keep, they might be worth millions of dollars, even though you're only, only quote, only getting $80,000 a year, $60,000 a year. Those are million dollar plus benefits. So all in, you might be, hit, you might be at two, three, four, five million dollars of pre-tax savings. What if tax brackets go up 5%? That's a big deal. Your silent partner, Uncle Sam, and all of these accounts just keeps on taking, right? So- John, I appreciate that for mistake number two. Alex, let's move on to you for your last mistake, and then we'll wrap this up. All right. So I think mine actually builds off of John's a little bit. So one mistake that I see a lot is people getting too conservative as they get close to retirement or maybe when they do retire. And it's not their fault. I think it builds off of the conventional wisdom we're all taught when we start investing or if you read anything online, and that is early in your career, while you're young and getting started, you should be taking more risk and being a more aggressive portfolio. And then as you get closer to retirement, it should maybe taper down a little bit and become more conservative. So one mistake that we see is people like John was talking about, they're either retiring in two months or maybe they just retired and they've saved up a million dollars. And because of that, they've transitioned from being in a balanced portfolio to something that's very much in bonds, fixed income, cash, guaranteed accounts, or whatever they have available to them. And although that's good, because if the market goes down, they're going to have some comfort there. The reality is that if you're like a lot of people who are fortunate enough to retire in their late 50s or their early 60s, 
you might have a retirement that's 30 plus years long. So if you're not investing some money for the long term that's going to grow, you're one, losing to inflation, but ultimately you're just not having the performance that you want to have. One way that we coach people around this is what we call the bucket approach, which I know we've talked about in podcasts before, but the idea is we might have three buckets for retirement, one being the long-term bucket, which is more aggressive. We have a midterm bucket and then the short-term bucket, which is really what you pay your bills out of in retirement. And I think that gives clients a certain comfort level because they know that if the long-term bucket isn't performing well and they get their statement and they see that it's down a whole bunch, they at least know that they need to spend through their entire short and midterm buckets before they really need to feel that loss in their, their retirement. And hopefully in that time, the market would have recovered some. But I do think that's one thing we've been running into quite a bit. All the time. And, and, and Alex is mentioning fixed income and cash and bonds. And it's like, what I would say is the safe stuff. Hey, you should be... And, and they listen to their friends. We have a lot of folks that come in and they say, my friend told me that I should be more safe because I'm about to retire. And that's, right. that's exactly and right. One thing that helps play in that too, is if you look at most 401k plans, the menu of funds they give you include a lot of target date funds, which is great because it helps people simplify the investment process. But if you look at a target date fund for uh, 2022, which is a weird year, so it's probably not one of those, but maybe a 2025 fund, and you look at how conservative that's actually going to be by 2025, it might not actually line up with your investment goals. So it's important to make sure that your portfolio is actually custom built to what you need for your retirement, rather than just the blanket advice that comes with the target date fund. I like it, Alex. How much do you keep in that short-term bucket? For an average uh, client, would you say? It depends on the person. It might be anywhere from two to five years of mm-hmm. fixed expenses, but it really comes down to their comfort level. At the end of the day, if it's a difference between having two years or seven years in there, I don't want the client losing sleep at night. So if they feel comfortable having a little bit more in the short-term bucket, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Yeah. yeah. And for the listeners, the if you, have a, a, if you know that your bills are paid in a very safe account and things are covered for two, five, seven years... I'm telling you, I've been through multiple downturns in the market. That is so helpful psychologically as an investor just to say, hey, just look at that short-term bucket. The long-term one's going to be all over the place. That's the expectation. It's going to go way up. It's going to go way down. If you had the long-term bucket in place 10 years ago, even still, you would love it because it's going to be way up and it's grown tremendously for you. So we want to still make sure we capture that growth. Alex, I like it. I have nothing else to follow up on that. We're going to wrap it up right now. Guys, thanks to you and thanks so much for your time and expertise. I appreciate it. It means I didn't have to talk the whole time. I'm sure the listeners appreciate that too. Folks, to find any or all of us, just visit our website at www.sixpointsfp.com. You can find me on LinkedIn at David Pulsini CFP, or you can send us an email at info at sixpointsfp.com if you have any questions. Also, Let me throw this in there. I've enjoyed the several requests that we've had from our listeners. So keep them coming in. We'll get to it, I promise. But for now, make it a great day. Thank you for listening to the Dear Rochester Retire Well podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Six Point Financial Partners. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. 
Content here is for illustrative and educational purposes only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analysis of Six Point Financial Partners. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, Private Client Services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Six Point Financial Partners or RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by Registered Representatives of Private Client Services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by Investment Advisory Representatives of RFG Advisory, a Registered Investment Advisor. Private Client Services, Six Point Financial Partners, and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place.